making the Hall of Fame is the pinnacle of success. Whether it's in sports, art, or enterprise, the crowning achievement of someone's career is to be recognized by your peers and by those who follow you as someone who exemplifies excellence. In the field of sports, you might think about the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York, or the National Basketball Association's Hall of Fame in Springfield, Massachusetts, or the National Football League Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio, or perhaps closer to home, the National Hockey League Hall of Fame in Toronto. I remember the first time I went to the Hockey Hall of Fame. It was when it was still located on the grounds of the exhibition. Our family had come to the city to go to the CNE, and during the X, admission to the Hall of Fame was free. So while others headed off to the Midway or perhaps to the food building, my dad took me to the Hockey Hall of Fame, and it was great. I could just spend hours at the displays, reading the accounts of the various careers, and thinking about those who had been inducted. You could almost imagine what it was like to watch them play. Now you may glaze over with boredom when it comes to sports and your mind instead might go to something a little more exciting like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland or the Country Music Hall of Fame in Nashville. There are over 450 different halls of fame in Canada and the United States so there really is something for everyone. Like the National Toy Hall of Fame in Rochester, New York, where you can see uh, displays honoring inducted toys such as Lego, Crayola crayons, Etch-a-Sketch, the Frisbee, and of course, Monopoly. This summer, our teaching series is called Hall of Fame, and we are focusing in on who the Bible recognizes as exemplary when it comes to living a life of faith. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says that God's people... Live by faith, not by sight. And in Hebrews chapter 11, which will serve as the backdrop for our series, uh, we encounter what has become known as the Faith Hall of Fame. And this summer, Jay and I are going to uh, look at a number of the heroes who are listed here. And we're going to be taught by others in our church family as well who are part of our summer series teaching team, including Bill Barwick, Jen Viss, Dave Easton, Brad McGitchie. And we're going to be looking at different characters and how they lived a life of faith. And what we will see is that faith is the engine of the spiritual life. It, it is belief expressed in action. Well, let's jump in. I want to encourage you to open up your Bible to, to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is found right near the end of the New Testament, just before the book of James. And when you look at these inductees in chapter 11, you will see that each one of them is incredibly diverse. Their lives stretch over generations, and yet these people have one thing in common. They lived a life of faith in God, despite their circumstances and despite opposition. In baseball, the sports writers determine who will get elected to the hall, and it's generally accepted that you need to have 300 wins as a pitcher. 500 homers as a player or 3,000 hits to get elected to the Hall of Fame. But for the writer of Hebrews, to get into the Hall of Fame, you simply need to show one thing. Consistent faith in an exceptional God. And that's good news because it means that all of us can qualify. 
each of these adductees serve as an example of how we can develop Hall of Fame faith. Living by faith, it seems like such a simple concept, but it does require a long-term commitment, a long obedience in the same direction. A life of faith isn't lived intermittently. It's constant. It means living your life as if each of God's promises were true. It's seeing your life through the lens of eternity. It starts in the heart, but it always shows up in our actions. In Luke chapter 17, verse 5, the disciples come to Jesus and they ask him to increase their faith. That is their prayer. And that's the very thing that God wants to do for us. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. So let's do that right now. Let's stop for a moment like the disciples and let's pray. Just become aware that God is present with us right now. And that God is at work in our lives and he's speaking into our situation and into our circumstances. And right here at the start of this series and at the start of the summer, let's stop and pray and ask that God would give and grow faith in each one of us. That he would give you the gift of faith and that he would grow the gift of faith within you, within Compass, within each of us as a community together. So let's be quiet for a moment and then I will pray for us. Loving Father, Holy Spirit, precious Jesus, God Almighty, give us the gift of faith that we might learn to trust you fully. Through your word, inspire us. By your wisdom, teach us. Increase our faith and confidence, not in our own ability, but in you. Show us how to be as faithful to you as you have been to us and shape our lives to look like Jesus, we pray in his holy name. Amen. Faith really is the essential ingredient for a life with God. It's the very thing that distinguishes a believer from a non-believer. In fact, without faith in God, you can have no relationship with him. Now, most people have a vague, disjointed notion of who God is, but God does not have a place of reverence and trust in their lives. True faith goes beyond simply a recognition that God is there. It's a life-changing reliance on God as revealed in the Bible. Here in Hebrews chapter 11, in verse 6, it says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God, to know God. To receive God's salvation. Why? Because anyone who comes to him must believe, trust, commit to the truth that he exists and that he rewards, he blesses, strengthens, helps, and loves those who earnestly seek him. That word earnestly can also be translated diligently, 
passionately, consistently, showing us that while God's grace is free, taking a hold of that gift does require effort. You don't accidentally end up in the Hall of Fame. Well, let's begin by defining what we mean by faith. Here's what the dictionary suggests. Faith is a strong or complete trust or confidence in someone or something. It is a belief not based on concluding evidence or proof. It's a declaration of loyalty and fidelity to a person, promise, or commitment. How would you define faith? What does it look like in your life? What would you say are the essential characteristics or actions of a life of faith? Here in Hebrews chapter 11, faith is defined this way, starting in verse 1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. We tend to read the Bible in view of our present daily life and reality, but it's really helpful to think about the context of those who first received this letter. Hebrews was written to men and women who were dealing with and wrestling with faith in uh, in a life and death way that we may never experience. The audience is made up of Jewish people who had made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And yet because of that profession, they were now being persecuted by their fellow Jews for abandoning their religious tradition. But they were also facing Roman persecution. You see, under the Romans, as long as a person didn't cause civil disobedience that would threaten the peace of Rome, and as long as they would swear their ultimate allegiance to Caesar with the declaration that Caesar is Lord, they were free to also then worship other deities that that they they may pick or desire. Judaism was a long-established religion. It was much older than the Roman Empire, and so they, they kind of had a grandfather clause. The Jews were exempt from this requirement of offering worship to Caesar as long as they did not disturb the peace. And at first, Christianity, which was considered a subset of Judaism, um, was extended the same exemption. However, as time went by, the Jewish leaders were increasingly hostile towards the Christians particularly towards Jewish Christians, and they began to denounce them. Once Rome began to see Christianity as a new religion, then suddenly the requirements regarding Caesar were enforced. And of course, for Christians to say Caesar is Lord was a direct contradiction to the essential truth that Jesus is Lord. They simply could not do it. Now, it seems that some Jewish Christians had the idea that maybe they could go back to Judaism, that they could escape persecution from the Jews and from the Romans if they simply related to God through Old Testament means. But the writer of Hebrews says there is no going back. You can almost hear the old Christian campfire song, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. What Hebrews shows us is that there is no salvation in the Old Covenant now that Jesus has come. The Old Covenant that the Jews had followed pointed to Jesus and he was the fulfillment of it. A proper understanding of the Old Testament does not draw someone back into Judaism and to temple worship and to the law and to sacrifices. Rather, it pushes us forward to faith in Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb who was sacrificed. He is the one mediator between God and people. He is the great high priest. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And in Hebrews 10, 39, which is the last verse of chapter 10 before chapter 11 begins, the writer expresses confidence in that his readers will make the correct decision. And he warns them about the consequences of this choice when he writes, but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. And then chapter 11 begins, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not yet see. Then the writer begins to list out from the Old Testament a list of believers who had accomplished great things by faith. And it is an invitation for each and every one of us to imitate their lives. Think about it. If you, had, uh, if you were given a verse to describe your life, what might it say? How do you show your faith? It might be easier to look at the life of somebody else, someone who you spiritually admire, and write a sentence about them. For example, you might say, By faith, my mom trusts God every day to use her prayers in simple actions as part of his kingdom work. Now, those who are included in the Hall of Fame were not perfect. Many had stunning failures. Some had serious ongoing character defects. However, each of them came to a turning point in their life where they made the choice to trust God. And rather than go back to what they could see, they pushed forward to what they could not see. They trusted where God was taking them. They didn't retreat to the safe and to the comfortable. And they did not take the easy way. The author is calling the readers to not put their trust for salvation in their own ability morality, heritage, or traditions, but rather to put their trust firmly in Jesus and to let Jesus be the center of a life of faith. People still face this same choice when it comes to faith today. Sometimes people will rationalize, I'm good enough, or at least I'm not that bad. Besides, my, my parents were Christians, or I grew up going to church. I'm not against faith, I'm just not that into it. But genuine faith is not wishy-washy or half-hearted. It's ongoing, confident, earnest, and passionate. And the result of faith is salvation and a deepening relationship with God that lasts for eternity. 1 Peter chapter 1 says this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. According to Hebrews 11, faith is believing that God exists, that his promises are always true, and that he rewards those and he blesses those who seek after him. This is a call to hold fast to faith and commitment in God, no matter what comes our way. And then after defining faith, the author of Hebrews goes on to list out examples of those who show us what it looks like to live this life of faith. And the first inductee into the hall is Abel, Adam and Eve's son. Now, why start with Abel? What did he do that was so special? Well, I think there's a lot that we can learn from him. In verse 4, we are told that it is by faith Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. 
By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. In verse 4, the writer of Hebrews takes us all the way back to the beginning of the redemptive story. To the days immediately following the events of the Garden of Eden. And in doing so, he's showing us that faith has always been the plan of God. So keep a finger here in Hebrews and turn all the way back to Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And in Genesis chapter 4, we find the story of Adam and Eve's oldest two sons, Cain and Abel. The Bible says that they have a lot in common. Both young men were hard workers. Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain was the tiller of, of the ground. Both young men were taught to worship God as their creator. And I imagine both of them throughout their life were instructed in the ways of God by Adam and Eve who would tell them about those early days in the garden when, they, when God blessed them and walked with them. They might have told them about how sin entered the garden and how they chose to disobey God. And even though they came under the curse of sin, God did not abandon them. Now because they were children of Adam, the Bible says that both Cain and Abel were sinners. They had a sinful nature and they needed to be saved. They needed to be brought back into a right relationship with God through faith. And while they had a lot in common, the difference between the two was their faith. Look at Genesis 4 verses 3 to 5. It says, In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked on, with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. We seem to hear and know much more about Cain than Abel. Even Bible commentators spend way more time focused on Cain's disobedience than on Abel's faith. But there are things that emerge here about Abel that qualify him for the faith hall of fame. And the first is Abel's offering. Hebrews 11.4 says that, it, says that by faith, it was by faith that Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Now when you read that, you might immediately ask, why did God accept Abel's offering and not Cain's? Well, we are not specifically told, but there are three possibilities. And the first has to do with the type of offering. Abel brought what God commanded. Cain did not. Abel came through a blood sacrifice. Adam and Eve would have, would have communicated this principle to their children that the, the way to approach God was through animal sacrifice and that the shedding of blood was what was required in order for them to seek forgiveness and to stand forgiven in the presence of God. And that's why Abel's sacrifice was acceptable and Cain's bloodless offering was not. This was true long before the law of Moses, for we see that first blood atonement mentioned one chapter earlier in Genesis 3.21, where God himself shed the blood of an animal in order to cover Adam and Eve's sin and shame and to provide skins of cover for their nakedness. And all of this from the very beginning points us forward to Jesus who would come as the ultimate sacrifice, to be the, the perfect sacrifice, who would break the curse, cover our sin and shame, and clothe us with righteousness and with love. The second possibility of why Abel's sacrifice was acceptable to God is the quality of offering. 
Abel, Abel brought his first and best to God. Cain did not. Look at verse 3. It says, Cain brought some of the fruits, not the first or the best. Abel brought the fat portions and the firstborn of his flock. Notice, Abel brought both his first and his best. And this is an indication of his love and his absolute devotion to God. This shows the priority that God had in his life. When we give God from our time and our finances and our spiritual gifts and our abilities, it's all an act of worship. So we need to ask, do I give God my very best? What is the quality of my offering to God? Is God my first priority? Now, I don't think that God is being a stickler here. He's not being petty. He's not expecting perfection. There are other places in the Bible where, where grain offerings were given to God and welcomed and accepted and where people worshipped with the very little they had. I think the third and probably most likely reason why Cain's sacrifice was unacceptable and Abel's was accepted is because of the attitude of the offerer. Abel brought a proper attitude to God and Cain did not. At the end of verse 4, we read that the Lord looked on favor on Abel and his offering, but Cain and his offering, he did not look on with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then in verse 6, it says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Cain was full of pride and his focus was on himself. And his offering, when his offering was rejected by God, he is filled with anger and he has a temper tantrum right there at the altar. It seems as if Cain is the one who is determined to stay angry. Even though God comes and gives him a second chance, he's having none of it. Earlier on, Adam and Eve had to be talked into sin, but here Cain is having to be talked out of it, and he's having none of it. In grace and love, God gives him a second chance to do what is right, but instead of humbling himself, Cain gets even more angry, and he allows his anger to lead to jealousy. Look at verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Pride. Anger, jealousy, finally murder. This is the progressive nature of sin. But it doesn't stop there. Cain has the audacity to lie straight to the face of God. Verse 9 says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Abel's offer offered his sacrifice by faith in humble dependency on God and it led to a deepening relationship with God. Cain's offering was given through pride and self-reliance and it led to anger, jealousy, murder, lying and a distance in his relationship with God. And the contrast reveals a second thing that qualified Abel for the hall of fame of faith. And that is Abel's character. We read in Hebrews 11.4 that by faith he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offering. 
Abel is being commended for his character, his walk with the Lord as an Old Testament believer. The sacrifice that he offered to the Lord was not the means of his salvation. Sacrifice was not the way people got saved in the Old Testament. People got saved in the Old Testament the same way people get saved today in New Testament times. We are saved through trust and faith in God's grace demonstrated in Jesus Christ. Today we look back on the cross. We look back on the coming of Jesus and we put our trust in what he did for us on the cross. In the Old Testament times, they looked forward to the coming of Messiah, to the coming of Christ, and they put their trust and faith in what he was still to do. So when Abel offered his sacrifice, he did so not in order to get saved. His offering was made as a believer, as one who trusted and who had faith. And it was his expression of faith, his expression of love and commitment to God. So his offering demonstrated his righteous character as a believer. Cain puts his trust in himself. Abel puts his trust in God. It's not the quality of their faith that matters. It's the object. How would you describe your Christian life? Is it like Abel's, humble and dependent on God? Or is it more like Cain's, independent, self-focused, demanding your own way? Perhaps you're thinking, you know, I, to be honest, I'm actually a little bit more like Cain than I would like to be, but I, I really would like to be more like Abel. I believe that God extends the same grace and love to you that he extended to Cain. God wants us to make things right, to come into that deepening relationship with him, and all we simply have to do is what Cain refused to do. Humble yourself. Admit to God that your attitude and your priorities have not been right. That you've done things your own way. That you've not given your very best to God. Simply tell the truth and confess your pride, your arrogance, your self-reliance, your need for God's grace, forgiveness, and love. And then ask God for his help to help you to, to receive those gifts and to live you out your faith in a humble way that shows your dependency on him. Hebrews 11 shows us plaque after plaque after plaque of Old Testament believers who lived their lives by faith. Men and women who lived in humble dependency on God. And the first one we come to is Abel. He heads the list because of his acceptable sacrifice and righteous character. Finally, the writer of Hebrews concludes that by sharing with us Abel's legacy. Consider these words at the end of verse 4. And by faith he still speaks, even though he is dead. Abel paid the ultimate sacrifice for his faith. It cost him his life. Not only was Abel the first death recorded in Scripture, he was also the first martyr. A martyr is someone who dies for his or her faith. And this would be encourage, an encouraging truth for those who were experiencing such incredible persecution from the Romans and from the Jews. Imagine how they would have been spurred on and even applauding what Abel did as they thought about how he responded. Maybe they lingered at his plaque a little longer, remembering that they were not the first ones to experience suffering and even death for their faith. Genuine faith 
always comes at a cost. It carries a price. There is always a sacrifice to following Jesus and living a life of faith and character. Faith is an uphill uh, swim. It goes against the current, but it builds a legacy that will last for eternity. Abel's faith outlived him. It echoed for all of eternity. He was the first one home to heaven and to be with God forever and ever. In fact, his righteous example of faith continues to speak even today. Abel leaves us a legacy of of a life lived by faith. Scottish theologian James Moffat comments, death is never the last word in the life of a righteous man. So let me ask you, what legacy are you going to leave? What are people going to remember about you when you are gone? What would your family and friends say are your priorities? What gets your very best? And how does faith factor in? What will God say about you on Judgment Day, about your life and about your faith? In Hebrews 11, Abel is the first of many examples of what it means to live by faith. And of all these heroes of faith, he is one who serves as an inspiration and an example to each of us. Each one of them, including Abel, point us to Jesus. And as we come to Hebrews chapter 12, we are given the ultimate example. Hebrews 12 begins, Therefore, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us in the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Faith does not guarantee that things will go smoothly for us. It does guarantee that we will live in such a way that God is pleased with us and that we will experience his blessing even in the midst of trial and trouble. We too can join the hall of fame. Let's pray together. Lord, we place our trust in you and we ask that you would put within us a holy fire that keeps us spiritually alive and burning fiercely for you. Help us to believe that we can overcome and have victory despite the real trouble and opposition that we face. Jesus, you are the King of Kings and you say that the righteous will live by faith and so we ask for this gift of faith Lord, would you mold us more and more into your image and fill our hearts with faith, love, and courage. Guide our actions so that we might experience abundant life and keep our eyes fixed on you and you alone, we pray in your beautiful name. Amen.